0: Okay so now we're going to move on to chapter 9 of the book and talk about the courts and the judiciary and we're going to look first at the structure of the court system in Canada and then we're going to talk a bit about the constitutional basis for that structure and then we'll talk about the uh, appointment process to the courts as well as the principle of judicial independence. So a helpful thing to have open is at page 360 of your text where there's a a chart entitled the outline of Canada's court system and what you'll notice right at the outset is at the very top is the Supreme Court of Canada and it's all roads lead to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada is the final Court of Appeal on all matters in Canada. This is distinguishable from the United States for example where the United States Supreme Court is only the final court on federal matters, but for a purely state matter, the states have their own final court of appeal, their own state supreme courts. In Canada, the uh, state equivalent would be the the provincial uh, superior courts, and these courts, as well as the federal court, all uh, have appeals that lead to the Supreme Court of Canada. And so you'll see that at the very bottom, there are provincial and territorial administrative tribunals and federal administrative tribunals. We're going to get into that more when we talk about administrative law. But what is important to look at is one step above, and leaving aside the the military courts, which is a, a specialized thing that I'm not going to get into, you have the provincial and territorial courts. Now, these are the provincial and territorial statutory courts and we'll get in the distinction between statutory and superior courts in a second when we talk about the uh, constitutional basis for the court system but these these courts then go up to the provincial and territorial superior courts so that is the bc supreme court the alberta court of queen's bench the ontario superior court and that court then goes up to the provincial or territorial courts of appeal the British Columbia Court of Appeal uh, for our jurisdiction and then that goes up to the Supreme Court of Canada and you see the federal side as well has a similar structure the federal court and tax court are the two federal trial level courts and then these go on appeal up to the federal court of appeal which goes up to the Supreme Court of Canada so you could trace any case On this chart you could find it would start at either a provincial or territorial administrative tribunal a provincial or territorial court or a provincial or territorial superior court those are the places it could start and then they would go up to the next level then up to a court of appeal perhaps and then up to the Supreme Court of Canada if leave is granted so let's break down a bit more what these different courts are so The provincial or territorial courts that are noted at the bottom of the hierarchy, these are statutorily created courts. These courts handle less serious criminal offenses. They handle small claims cases in British Columbia. They handle cases for claims under thirty five thousand dollars, traffic violations, many family matters, youth criminal court is in the provincial courts and judges of these courts are appointed by the provincial government so these courts will talk more about the importance of the statutory court versus superior court in a moment but you want to think british columbia provincial court is our local example of one of these types of courts and this british columbia provincial court you think smaller criminal matters small claims many frankly most family matters, and uh, youth criminal justice. The next level up is the superior courts, British Columbia Supreme Court. And these superior courts have inherent jurisdiction. Inherent jurisdiction of the superior courts means that they can hear any case at all, unless there's a statute that explicitly takes away their jurisdiction to hear that case. They hear the most serious criminal and civil cases, Um, serious criminal cases, including murder, jury trials must be in the superior courts. Civil cases where the amount sought is over 35,000. So frankly, many, many civil cases wind up there. Uh, Divorce and custody cases, more serious family law cases. And they can also hear appeals from the provincial courts. So if you are unhappy with the provincial court decision, you can appeal to the Supreme Court. You move up a level in British Columbia, you have the British Columbia Court of Appeal. This is an appellate court. It hears appeals from the British Columbia Supreme Court. And you sit in panels of three or five judges. Um, Some decisions require leave to appeal, interim or interlocutory decisions, that is not final decisions, the types of decisions that the courts make along the way in deciding a case often require leave to appeal whereas final decisions do not require leave to appeal generally. And judges here are appointed by the federal government, not by the provincial government. So it's the prime minister, uh, the minister of justice, who makes the recommendations and the appointments are made by the governor general. You also have the federal court, which is a another statutorily created court and it has jurisdiction to hear generally claims against the government of Canada, uh, some civil suits between private parties in federally regulated areas like maritime law, patents, trademarks, and judicial review of administrative decisions by federal decision makers. So we'll get back into administrative law, judicial review in a subsequent class, but the federal court has quite a bit of work that is done In the judicial review context. So, if you're unhappy with a decision that is made by the executive, that is the federal executive, somebody acting pursuant to a federal power, and you want to challenge that decision, you're going to go to federal court to do so. Judges, not surprisingly, there are also appointed federally. And then the Federal Court of Appeal uh, hears appeals from the federal court and also from the tax court, which deals with people who are unhappy with tax decisions. The Supreme Court of Canada, this final court of appeal is established by the Supreme Court act generally requires leave to appeal. There are some cases you get an appeal as of right. Generally that is when there's a criminal case and there is a dissenting judgment within a criminal case, but otherwise you need to show that your case has public importance. And most cases where the lawyers seek leave to appeal uh, are not successful. Usually, leave is not granted. I've personally been counsel on quite a few leave to appeal cases, and I have never won when I'm asking for leave to appeal, and I've never lost when I'm opposing leave to appeal. So, it's a, the deck is very much stacked against granting leave to appeal. It's ultimately this question of, can you show that it is a matter of public importance? And um, this is a question that's answered based on looking at, you know, are there two different uh, courts of appeal? Is the Ontario Court of Appeal and the BC Court of Appeal in disagreement about something? Is this a novel question that really is going to fundamentally affect the legal system as a whole? Uh, And also there are some times where a judge just has an idea that an area of law requires a bit of revisiting, and they will grant leave to appeal in perhaps a less striking case, but because there's a purpose behind it. Um, We mentioned also the Supreme Court of Canada hears references. We saw this in the Senate reference, for example. And these are the cases where the uh, federal government asks about the constitutionality of something that they're Doing or planning to do on the overall structure you want to think okay you've got these provincial courts at the bottom they hear less serious matters you've got the superior courts with their inherent jurisdiction they can hear anything unless a statute has taken away their power to hear it these are the general trial level courts these have a broad array of things they hear then you think okay you move up one level you've got your courts of appeal every province has one and there's a federal court of appeal Federal Court of Appeal sits in Ottawa, generally. The Federal Court sits throughout the country. And then you think you move up to the highest level. You've got the Supreme Court of Canada. And all roads lead to the Supreme Court of Canada. So I said there's a constitutional basis that we need to consider. And that is that the Superior Court and the other courts have a different constitutional basis. The superior courts, these courts of inherent jurisdiction, the British Columbia Supreme Court being our example, is created under section 96 of the Constitution. This is important. You want to think section 96 courts. They're created pursuant to section 96 of the Constitution Act 1867. Section 96 courts are the courts that have this inherent jurisdiction section 96 says the governor general shall appoint the judges of the superior courts in each province section 101 of the constitution act 1867 however allows for the creation of the other courts section 101 gives parliament the ability to provide for the constitution maintenance and organization of a general court of appeal for canada okay that is the supreme court of canada and for the establishment of any additional courts for the better administration of the laws of canada and then finally you have section 92 14 of the constitution act 1867 and this gives the provincial governments the power to constitute maintain and organize provincial courts of civil and criminal jurisdiction so You want to think you've got this three different bases. You've got section 96 courts presumed to exist in the constitution. It's not that the constitution says the governor general may create these courts. It says the governor general shall appoint the judges to these superior courts. They're going to exist. And then you have the section 101 courts. The the parliament may create a general court of appeal, Supreme Court of Canada. may create courts for the better administration of the laws of Canada. That's been interpreted to mean the federal laws, so the federal court, tax court. And then you have this power under section 92. We're going to talk about section 92 of the Constitution a lot when we get to federalism. But you have a power under section 92 which allows the provincial governments to establish provincial courts. So you've different constitutional bases for the courts and The important thing to note is if the court is created by a legislature, if it's created by the federal legislature or it's created by the provincial legislature, well, it has such power as is given to it by the legislation. If it's not, if it's the Section 96 court, there's nothing that gives it its legislative power. So rather, that's where the idea comes from that it has this inherent jurisdiction, it's jurisdiction is plenary. This comes from the British model, and this is the theory upon which these courts operate, that they can order anything unless a statute specifically takes away that power. And even if it does, they have the ability to review that statute to see if it was valid in taking away their power. And if there was a statute that would take away so much power, from those courts that they would no longer be of the same type as was contemplated in the Constitution, the courts will strike down that statute. They'll say, nope, you've gone too far. You've taken away too much power from a section 96 court. This won't stand. This statute is unconstitutional. They guard their own jurisdiction by saying that any statute which takes away too much of their power, too much of their inherent jurisdiction, cannot stand. So then you want to think really three different types of trial level courts you have the provincial courts created by the provincial legislatures pursuant to their power set out in section 92 of the constitution you have the courts of the superior courts the british columbia supreme court with that inherent jurisdiction which is contemplated and implicit within section 96 of the constitution not created by statute it's Implicit within the Constitution that there will be such courts. And then you have the Section 101 courts created by the federal parliament. And this includes the federal court and the Supreme Court of Canada. Supreme Court of Canada is optional. And what's interesting though is that Supreme Court of Canada is optional in that it didn't have to be created. But as we'll see later on when we discuss the uh, Nadon case about the appointment of Justice Nadon the existence of the supreme court of canada has now been constitutionalized through section through the constitution act 1982 which contemplates a constitutional amendment being necessary to change the composition of the court so it was optional it was created now it's been constitutionalized you're not going to be able to abolish the supreme court without a constitutional amendment now so how is the Appointment process governed in Canada. Who gets to be a judge of these courts? Well, with respect to non-Supreme Court of Canada appointments, any lawyer with more than ten years at the bar may apply to the Commissioner for Federal Judicial Affairs. Applications are considered by an independent Judicial Advisory Committee, and. These applications are extensive. I had a couple of colleagues at the Department of Justice who uh, applied to be judges and they told me about, they came in every Saturday for two months and worked all day on their application process. And you can see these applications, um, their answers online for recent appointees. So you can see this the types of considerations that go into um, deciding who's going to be a judge. There's not, however, a advice and consent requirement like there is in the United States. You hear in the U.S. these battles over confirming judges in the Senate, right? There's no, there's no equivalent thing. It is the discretion of the executive to appoint judges. And this has led to criticism that you're ultimately... Uh, getting towards a system of political patronage for judges. Now, I don't agree that that's the case. And I think that, generally speaking, Canadian judges are very well qualified. And the degree of political influence vis-a-vis who gets appointed based on um, some political litmus test or something like that really hasn't taken root in Canada, generally speaking, people are appointed to the courts on merit i can say that with you know i'm glad to be able to say that as a general rule but it doesn't mean that the system is immune from criticism that there is a political uh, patronage angle so the next thing i'll do is i'll play a clip from a parliamentary debate this is a member of parliament uh, wayne easter who question the current minister of justice at the time, Peter McKay, on his record of judicial appointments. This is from February
1: 2015. Mr. Speaker, let's come back to the minister of justice who seems to uh, believe that judicial appointments under his preview are to place friends into high-placed, high-paying jobs. Nine judges appointed, six his friends. His best man at his wedding, his best man's wife. Two past Conservative vice presidents of riding associations, former vice president of the Nova Scotia PC Association, friend from law school. Why the ethical lapse, Mr. Speaker? What happened to integrity in terms of appointing judges? Or is the minister just exercising patronage? Heaven for his friends. Yeah,
0: yeah. Honourable Parliamentary Secretary, Minister of Justice, Mr. Speaker. Perhaps the honourable member doesn't know how the judicial appointments process works,
1: so I'll I help him out. Uh, every uh, person that applies for judicial appointment must go through judicial advisory committees in their in their area. Uh, it's only upon the recommendation of those committees that the persons are appointed committees. to the and they are independent are appointed to the bench.
0: And, Mr. Speaker, our judicial appointments are based on one criteria and one criteria only that is whether the individual is qualified for the job determined on merit and legal excellence so you see that the system though in my opinion it's not been abused to any great extent is subject to criticism because it does not have a a check as against the decision of the executive to appoint judges and if Indeed, there was to be a executive who were to, you know, attempt to put in judges based strictly on political considerations, um, maybe some wedge issue or or something like that. There wouldn't be a Senate or there wouldn't be a body that could have the formal power to stop that. The only way to stop that would be through the political process through an election. And so that leads to the criticism that there's a lack of transparency. Now, where I think there's a much more valid criticism of the Canadian judicial appointment process is a lack of diversity. Between 2009 and 2014, only three of 191 judicial appointees were not white. That's an abysmal record. That's 1.6% compared with 20% of Canadians at the time who are visible minorities. There has never been a person with an Aboriginal background to sit on the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah. Lauren Sausen, a now a judge of the Ontario Superior Court, previously a well-known law professor, Judge Sawson wrote in 2016, Canada has never had Supreme Court Justice, a Supreme Court Justice who is Indigenous, who is from a visible minority, who has a religious background that is not Christian or Jewish, or who self-identifies as other than heterosexual. Suffice to say the Supreme Court of 2016 simply does not reflect the Canada of 2016 not even approximately. So to summarize, do I think that there's a problem where unqualified people are being appointed as judges merely because of their political connections? No, not really. Do I think that there is a lack of transparency in the judicial pro appointment process to some extent? Do I think there is a glaring problem with the lack of diversity in the judicial in the judiciary? Absolutely. There have been efforts to increase the transparency of the Supreme Court of Canada appointment process and the Harper government instituted a Process that it followed um, for a few appointments where there were public hearings to allow the judges to answer questions from members of Parliament uh, About their views on judging now This was not the same as the US process where you have these Senate hearings that result in a vote to either approve or not approve. There was not a power to approve or not approve It was still the formal decision of the Prime Minister but these were seen as an effort to increase transparency and these happened for several supreme court judges and then the system um, stopped Ta- page 380 of your book there's a um, a breakdown of the advisory committee versus public hearing versus other consultations which occurred for the appointment of different judges and you can see that there were different processes that were used for these different appointees, which just underscores that it's a discretionary decision of the executive and there isn't any formal constraint. They don't have to go to an advisory committee. They don't have to have a public hearing. They don't have to do other processes. These are all a matter of choice by the party in power as to how they want to make their Supreme Court appointments. And they're dictated in those choices by what they think is going to appear fair and reasonable and you know, presumably garner support for their appointment and the effectiveness of their governance. Some people quite like the idea of a public hearing. Some people do not have a public hearing to have a judge answer questions. But not everybody agrees and so I'm going to play a clip from an interview with uh, then Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin from 2009 where she explained why she was against a more public scrutiny of appointees to the Supreme Court of Canada. Should we have
1: a kind of tougher vetting process for the jobs that you have before, for example, a parliamentary committee? I think our process is working pretty well. And so I guess my answer would be no. That's my opinion. Other people might have other opinions. Um, I think most people who know the Supreme Court of Canada well uh, would agree that uh, we don't have uh, a a marked right-left syndrome. We don't have judges on the court who are identified by political stances. Uh, We are much less political in that sense than, some people suggest, the American courts are. And I think that's a good thing. And uh, the absence of politicization of the process, I think, has permitted uh, prime ministers and cabinets over the years to simply say, Who's the best person from the part of the country that we are looking for uh, a justice of the Supreme Court from? So history, I think, shows it's work pretty well, the way we do it. There's a danger if you get politicians involved, uh, parliamentary hearings, Senate hearings, whatever it might be, uh, that that committee can break on party lines and that you bring political considerations into the appointment. Now, it's up to every citizen I suppose to decide whether that's a good thing but there are a lot of people who don't think that that is necessarily good in a judiciary. A lot of people think we should ha- not have a politicized judiciary.
0: The one thing you may have heard in that clip from Chief Justice McLaughlin is she talks about the geographic place where a judge comes from as being important and indeed as we'll see in this next discussion it can be very important The Supreme Court has a system whereby different seats on the court are slotted to be filled by judges from different regions. For most of these regions, that's a matter of convention. There's not a binding rule, but there was a long-standing practice that the composition of the court would include an Atlantic representative, judges from Ontario, the Prairies in the North, and British Columbia. This was a convention. However, in the appointment of Justice Sheila Martin, who replaced Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin when she retired, that was a seat that ordinarily by convention would have belonged to a judge from British Columbia. The government did not appoint a judge from British Columbia to replace her. Rather, they appointed Justice Sheila Martin a judge of the Alberta Court of Appeal. Now, this was a decision that caused quite a bit of um, discussion and, and debate within British Columbia as to how important it was that they had the, the government had decided not to appoint a judge from British Columbia to that seat. Um, some people thought it was highly inappropriate that there is unique British Columbia values and perspectives that ought to be represented by the court and by convention had been represented on the court and would not be represented on the court for quite some time now others said i don't really care about it being a judge from british columbia but i wish it had been an indigenous justice who was appointed Um, and others say that you know it's it's not important that an alberta judge can represent a view from the west as well as a british columbia judge can so what is the legal consequence of violating a constitutional convention a convention about the appointment of judges to depart from that and say we're not going to appoint a british columbia judge Uh, whether that's a constitutional convention or convention of appointment, we're not going to follow that anymore well nothing there's no legal consequence to not following a convention you can't set aside an appointment because it didn't follow an established practice you can depart from an established practice however three of the seats on the Supreme Court of Canada are reserved for judges from Quebec. This is not a matter of just practice or convention. This is explicitly written into the Supreme Court Act, the act that creates the Supreme Court of Canada. And this all came to a head in a rather dramatic fashion with the appointment of Justice Nadon to the Supreme Court of Canada. Justice Nadon was a actually supernumerary judge, the semi-retired judge of the federal court of appeal, and he was appointed for one of the designated Quebec seats under the Supreme Court Act. So sections five and six of the Supreme Court Act, the act that creates the Supreme Court of Canada and which governs uh, some rules including appointment to it, state, Any person may be appointed a judge who is or has been a judge of a superior court of a province or a barrister or advocate of at least 10 years standing at the bar of a province. And at least three of the judges shall be appointed from among the judges of the court of appeal or of the superior court of the province of Quebec or from among the advocates of that province. So Justice Nadon was neither a judge on a Quebec court. He was a judge on the federal court of appeal nor a member of the Quebec Bar, though he had been when he was first appointed to the federal court. This appointment was challenged by, actually, Rocco Galati, the lawyer that we uh, we spoke of previously with respect to the challenge to the governor general's granting of royal assent to the bill that could strip citizenship from certain individuals. And the federal government said, okay, we've got this Rocco Galati challenge, let's sort of take the driver's wheel and we are going to, instead of letting that wind its way up through the courts, we are going to issue a reference question. We're going to ask the Supreme Court of Canada to interpret the Supreme Court Act and tell us if we can indeed appoint Mr. Nadon to the Supreme Court of Canada. And in what was one of the more shocking legal decisions, uh, the Supreme Court said no. They said Justice Nadon is not eligible to sit on the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, this was especially shocking because he had been appointed, he had been sworn in, he hadn't started hearing cases, and then Mr. Gulati issues this challenge, the government issues the reference, so he is um, effectively walking around, he's at the court, but his colleagues decide <laughs> that he can't sit with them. It's It was was quite the quite the result and the reasoning is that the court said that by specifying that the three judges with it, by specifying within the Supreme Court Act that the three judges shall be from among the judges and advocates the plain meaning excludes former judges or advocates and then they also looked at the underlying purpose of section 6 they said there was a historical compromise that led to the Supreme Court of Canada being bi you know, having judges with a civil law background and a common law background. And the purpose was to ensure that there was civil law expertise and representation of Quebec's legal traditions and social values and to enhance the confidence of Quebecers in the court. So the second issue was asked was well, can Parliament just amend the Supreme Court Act to include individuals with at least 10 years of practice experience at the Quebec Bar? And the court said no. And they said that's because of, going back to Section 101 of the Constitution Act, which allowed for a general court of appeal of Canada. And this became the Supreme Court of Canada. And then Section Forty One d this is getting in the weeds a bit, but in the Constitution Act 1982, the it says that, changes to the composition of the Supreme Court of Canada would require unanimous consent and a constitutional amendment. So while the Supreme Court was merely sort of an option in 1867, it became contemplated explicitly within the Constitution Act of 1982. It became constitutionalized in 1982. And so to change the Supreme Court Act, to change the rules about... uh, where the judges had to come from, what connection they had to have to Quebec would require a constitutional amendment. So that's gonna conclude our discussion of the Supreme Court and the judicial appointment process. And so the main takeaways you want to have are that this is a discretionary matter given to the government, that there's no formal check on who can be appointed apart from the requirement of 10 years call to the bar that they have um, put in different processes through the years, but these are optional and can be departed from. But the one hard and fast rule, specifically about the Supreme Court of Canada appointments, is that the judges to that court must have at least three who are selected from among the judges or advocates of the Quebec Bar. You can depart from the conventions about taking somebody from BC, but you can't depart from the rule that you must take somebody either from the judges of Quebec or the advocates of the Quebec bar. And finally, in our discussion of the judges, I'm going to talk about the principle of judicial independence, a key idea that animates how judging is done in Canada in theory and in practice, I, I hope. So judicial independence is the freedom to render decisions based solely on the requirements of law and justice. It requires the judiciary be left free to act without improper interference from any other entity. That's from the BC and Imperial Tobacco case from 2005, Supreme Court of Canada. This is constitutionally required. Section 99 of the Constitution Act of 1867, says that judges shall hold office during good behavior and shall be removable by the governor general on address by the Senate and House of Commons. So there's a process for the governor general to remove judges, but as long as there's good behavior, they shall be judges. It can't be at the basis of a political whim or a disagreement with a decision. That's not bad behavior to justify removing a judge. The Constitution requires they shall be judges as long as their behavior is good section 11d of the charter of rights and freedoms we'll talk more about it says anybody charged an offense has the right to be presumed innocent until proven in law in a fair and public hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal so again this presumes judicial independence fairness and furthermore this has been found to be an unwritten constitutional principle that judges will be fair and independent that extends to all courts hearing any kind of case. So how do you guarantee judicial independence? Well, the courts have said there are three things that need to be there in order to allow an independent judiciary to exist. Security of tenure, financial security, and administrative independence with respect to the management of court business. Security of tenure, what does that mean? Well, judges cannot be dismissed before the age of retirement of 75, except for misconduct or disability. Before a judge is dismissed, there must be a judicial inquiry to establish cause. The judge must have an opportunity to be heard, and then a resolution of the House and Senate is required before a Superior Court judge can be dismissed. Under the Judges Act, the Canadian Judicial Council, the CJC, investigates complaints about federally appointed judges and makes recommendations to the Minister of Justice regarding their removal. And this is exceptionally rare. And I, I, I'm struggling to think if it's happened, there has been cases where judges have stepped down rather than be removed. Um, it's chaired by the Chief Justice of Canada, the Canadian Judicial Council. There are 38 other members who are Chief Justices, Associate Chief Justices, and senior judges at superior provincial courts and under the judges act the cjc may recommend removal only if a judge has become incapacitated or disabled from the due extension of the office of judge by reason of age or infirmity having been guilty of misconduct having failed in the due execution of that office or having been placed by his conduct or her conduct or otherwise in a position incompatible with the due execution of the office so Security of tenure means that unless you rise to this high level of misconduct, you're not going to be removed. You have tenure. You're going to be able to confidently judge. You're not going to face elections as they do in some United States jurisdictions. You're going to know that you can sit comfortably and not worry about your job security in making judgments. There's also the principle of financial security which is a judicially created presumption that they will be paid very well. And the idea is that if judges uh, weren't paid well, it would at least give the impression that they might be open to taking financial bribes. Um, This is a principle that is that is applied um you know i wonder about its truth i wonder about the idea that somebody is only not taking a bribe because they are getting paid enough i don't think that that is realistic in terms of why people take bribes i think that generally speaking an official who takes a bribe is fundamentally greedy and it's going to take a bribe regardless of how much they're getting paid and i also don't think that it's um paints judges in the best light to say that, well, we can presume that if you weren't getting paid enough, you'd be susceptible to compromise. Um, That being said, it is a principle that judges must be paid well, and they are, they're paid, you know, I think it's about $240,000 a year, something like that. Uh, If you, I've done it before where you think about, uh, you know, how much the judge is getting paid per you know, hour that they sit in court. And it's, it's really quite a lot. Anyways, um, administrative independence with respect to the management of court business means that the government can't go in and try to sort of get around the judicial independence by telling them how to manage the court business. Most importantly, you know, that where there'd be the biggest temptation is telling the court which judges to put on which cases, And as we're going to talk about more, I mean, that really, really, really matters. Instead of that being susceptible to interference by the government, that is a matter of discretion for the chief justice of each judge, of each court. So that'll round out our discussion on the courts and the judiciary. So you want to know the court framework. You want to know that you have these provincial courts that here the less serious criminal matters, the less uh, high stakes, as it were, civil matters, some family matters, many, most family matters, youth criminal justice matters. Then you have the Superior Court, inherent jurisdiction. It can decide any case unless its jurisdiction has been taken away by statute. And even then they may say you've gone too far in taking away our jurisdiction by statute. You have the Courts of Appeal, then you have the Supreme Court of Canada. You want to think about the constitutional bases for these courts you want to think about the superior courts who are created under section 96 of the constitution they're presumed to exist in the constitution you want to think that the federal court and the supreme court of canada are created under section 101 of the constitution but the supreme court of canada has now attained constitutional status in and of itself so it likely couldn't be abolished except for by constitutional amendment you want to think that the provincial courts are created by the provincial legislatures pursuant to a power they have under section 92 of the constitution it's not strictly important that you remember the numbers so much as the idea that the section 96 superior courts have this inherent jurisdiction they're contemplated in the constitution the section 101 and section 92 courts are they're optional although the supreme court of canada has been constitutionalized if you were to get rid of the B.C. Provincial Court, um, what would happen is all those powers would just go to the B.C. Supreme Court. You want to think about the judicial appointment process. Think about the um, general rule, which is people of 10 years of call to the bar apply to be judges. There's an advisory committees and then for the provincial, they're appointed by the provincial government for the provincial courts for the Uh, Superior Court, the Supreme Court, they're appointed federally by the Governor General. And for the Supreme Court of Canada, similarly appointed federally. And what you want to remember about that is this is fundamentally a power that is in the discretion of the executive. They don't have to get Parliament or the Senate or anybody else to agree with their appointments, so long as they satisfy the minimum requirements, which is just 10 years call to the bar, except for exception at the Supreme Court of Canada level, where for those three Quebec seats, the person has to be from among the current judges or advocates of Quebec. Then you think about judicial independence. What is it? Why is it? Well, what is it? It's the idea that judges need to be free of outside influence, both in fact and in appearance. And it's a guarantee that you're gonna have a uh, impartial tribunal is the idea. That's a guarantee provided to you in the constitution, both explicitly and implicitly. And it's got those three components that you're gonna have security of tenure. You can't be fired for just any reason. Security of remuneration, you're gonna get paid a lot. And you're gonna be free from interference with respect to the administration of the court. So that's our discussion on the courts and chapter nine. The next and final podcast of today is going to be a brief introduction to statutory interpretation.